Israelis were slaughtered in this day more than in any other day since the Holocaust. More Jews were killed on the 7th of October in any other day since 1945. Was October 7th the worst day in the history of Israel? Is the United States government doing enough to rescue the American hostages in Gaza? Does Iran already have nuclear weapon capabilities? And if so, what are the odds Iran will ever denuclearize? What would Vladimir Putin do if October 7th happens in Russia? Mr. Danny Ayalone served as Israel's ambassador to the United States from 2002 until 2006. From 1997 to 2002, Ayalone served as foreign policy advisor to Prime Ministers Bibi Netanyahu and Ehud Barak, and as chief foreign policy advisor to Prime Minister Ariel Sharon. Mr. Ayalon was a member of the Israeli delegations to Sharm el-Sheikh, Y Plantation, and Camp David summits, and served as a member of Israel's Knesset. We are willing to live side by side with an Arab state, with a Palestinian state, but this state should be a peaceful one, does not support terror, and that does not delegitimize Israel. What a privilege to have Ambassador Danny Ayalone share his expert insight with me on this episode of Some Future Day. Danny, your lifelong commitment to the Jewish people and the state of Israel is recognized and greatly appreciated. Thank you for taking the time to explain these complicated topics which span thousands of years. Ambassador, it is such an honor to have you join some future day today, particularly under these circumstances. Welcome. Well, thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, we're using this uh, wonderful uh, instrumentation of technology, but I would like one day to meet with you face to face. I intend on doing so. That would be important. So let's start with technology. You mentioned that, and obviously some future day analyzes technology, culture, and law. Let's consider security and information in um, Israel, and perhaps uh, some might say the security and information failures surrounding October 7th. I read recently, in your words, you've described them as deficiency of deployment, a total collapse. I've heard you use those words. So was there actually a technology failure on October 7th? Well, it wasn't technology as such. It was how to use the technology or not using it correctly. In any future arrangement, I know that we will have to use some redundancies. You know? So if uh, one system fails, then you can immediately or automatically uh, another one is, is activated. But here it was actually a failure of, of a concept, first and foremost. Uh, and the concept was, on the one hand, that um, Hamas uh, is not capable of um, actually such a, a devastating large-scale attack. And secondly was that, it is, he, that Hamas is deterred. Basically, after they uh, took Gaza in a violent uh, coup against the Palestinian Authority back in 2007, but once they have become the, uh, quote-unquote, the sovereign in Gaza, they would care for the population in terms of uh, providing them uh, uh, work and, and food and security and everything that uh, 
you know, any civil population needs. And on these two accounts, we were very much wrong. And this is why on the 7th of October, which uh, was a a Shabbat year, you know, the uh, uh, Saturday Shabbat, and also was the last day of um, uh, Tabernacle or Sukkot, you know, Simchat Torah, the military was in holiday, you know. Uh, so not only they um, did not read correctly the intelligence science, uh, but also in terms of deployment, uh, they were not there. This is why Hamas, when they attacked, they encountered only few, I would say, sleepy soldiers that were not combatant soldiers even. And, 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 and you know, they, they were bragging about this uh, uh, victory that they had in the first 24 hours. But what is this victory against? It was against civilian population, children, babies, elderly people. When the military uh, regrouped and came back, you know, then, you know, they were pushed over and uh, fairly easily. And, of course, now we see also the um, results of the ground operation, which is not yet uh, over, but it will be over with a decisive uh, victory. So just so I understand, are you categorizing those two issues as the first one, the Israeli government, didn't, they had knowledge that this might happen, but didn't think Hamas could pull it off? And the second piece of the failure was the fact that it was a not just Shabbat, but a highly religious day for Jews, and most of the soldiers were celebrating that day. Is that correct? Well, absolutely. I mean, if, if you want even go uh, a deeper, I mean, uh, first was the concept that uh, Hamas is deterred and all they want uh, to, to take care of their own populations. Uh, this is why um, the government of Israel agreed to actually bring a lot of money into uh, into Hamas. Actually, we've had, since Hamas took over, as we mentioned in this coup in 2007, we've had a few rounds of violence. Every uh, round of violence ended up with money, mostly from Qatar, coming into, uh, into the Hamas hands, almost like protection, almost like protection. And this was the case also um, on the 7th of October, came in wake also of a lot of unrest in, in Gaza. And the Hamas used their own uh, civil population. Actually, they pushed them towards the fence, you know, uh, the fence, the border with us. And again, they, uh, what ended up this um, unrest was money, an agreement to give more money to, uh, to Hamas. In, um, in hindsight, it was a subterfuge. You know, Hamas understood our concept. So it's like they demanded money. They got the money. They realized that we now are complacent because the round is over, supposedly. And this is when... They... So it's a, it's a whole concept. Um, and if I go even deeper than that, Mark, now there is also a, a big uh, debate here in Israel whether the uh, Netanyahu, uh, let's say, strategy for the last uh, 15 years was good or not, because uh, it was Netanyahu who tried to differentiate between Gaza and Judea and Samaria, or the West Bank. And he said, you know, he's on record saying that we should strengthen Hamas so we do not need to negotiate 
with the corrupt Palestinian Authority, with Abu Mazen in Ramallah, about a future Palestinian state. So it was a, um, a whole strategy to strengthen Hamas, to actually um, uh, divide the Palestinians into two entities. And of course, on the 7th of October, we got the brunt of the, the, the Hamas attack. Hamas was strong because of Israel. So, but, you know, from the images that I've seen on television here in the States, uh, you mentioned the, the, the wall. I think that um, it's widely now uh, referred to as the Iron Wall, where I believe Israel's dumped in tons of technology, billions of dollars into creating this Iron Wall. And yet it was breached by, it seems like, wire cutters and, um, you know, like crude types of uh, vehicles flown over, et cetera. So, why did the this this iron wall that this you know the, the highest level of technology not work? Well, the first um, idea of Hamas was actually to invade Israel uh, underground, and they built all this enormous uh, um, system of um, what we call attack uh, tunnels. These attack tunnels were discovered back in two thousand and fourteen. And uh, the, um, the remedy for that was a, an iron wall, which actually was dug deep underground so that Hamas did not really dig a, and, and, and go underground. Also, uh, we had a lot of technology, a lot of kind of uh, uh, seismographs and, and other uh, detection um, uh, material to uh, detect tunnels. So if they were... Uh, to dig a tunnel near our border, trying to, uh, uh, you know, just come underneath. That was detected. And indeed, we took out all their penetrating tunnels towards Israel, and we took care of it. But that also uh, left us complacent because we, we knew that their um, uh, fallback was... Uh, was not good enough, you know, they going over, you know, not using the tunnels. I mean, just coming straight uh, from our point of view was a very bad option from their point of view. And it would have been a bad option if our military was just uh, properly deployed. The IDF was not deployed. That that was the main problem. problem. Did the leaders of the government think when you talk about complacency, um, why would they think that the like realizing that they're financed by Qatar and realizing that Iran is also, you know, essentially, I think it's fair to say Hamas is a proxy of Iran. Why would the Israeli government think for a second that Hamas was totally incapable of pulling something off like this? In one word, hubris. Just, just. Um you know, not thinking um, straight <laughs> or thinking very, very uh, badly about your opponent. And this is not a good strategy to disparage your, uh, it's not an opponent here, it's, it's a uh, mortal enemy. And, uh, and this is why I believe uh, after the, uh, the war is over, many, many will have to, um, to, to just retire or resign uh, um, right now, I can tell you that the same military that had all this failure because they were not there, 
now they are doing a marvelous job from a military point of view. I mean, not only they are, they are um, fighting, combating in a very valiant, courageous way, also in a very smart and precise way. You know, it's, uh, we, we may discuss it later, but in such a condensed area, you know, with all the population over there, uh, urban warfare is the toughest type of, um, of warfare. And here, it's much more complex because it's not just the regular urban, because we also have the underground tunnels. And now I'm talking about the defense tunnels of uh, Gaza, not the ones that they were trying to penetrate over to Israel, but <clears throat> this uh, system that uh, they have built underground, which is enormous, 500 kilometers, like the 300 miles of uh, tunnels, fortified tunnels with uh, bunkers, and uh, it's really formidable. And uh, the IDF is taking it slowly in order to save lives, first of all, uh, Israeli soldier lives, but also civilians, the, the Gazan uh, population, which is, of course, being used as human shields by um, by by Hamas, and yes, there are casualties over there of uh, um, let's say not involved. Uh, but in terms of you know, if we can compare it to any other military um, campaign in history, including the ones in Afghanistan and in Iraq, the casualties here of uninvolved or civil population is minimal. Is minimal. I understand that. It's interesting when you use the word hubris, I actually referred to the situation on one of our previous episodes as a situation of hubris too. I use that exact word. And really what we're talking about is we're human, we're, it's humanity. And I think that um, on a global scale, it's easy to forget about um, the, the humanity, the spirituality that's um, built into this this situation, this war right now. Um, I have a colleague of mine, he's an Israeli, he lives not far from you, right outside of Tel Aviv. His name is Leo Spiegler, and I mention his name because he actually worked for me running the head of strategy at my agency for many years, and he grasps with this concept, which um, the, it, it's a human concept, uh, like what is the definition of a Jew? And we understand if we if we look at geography, we know that the name Jew is is derived from Judea. And if we look at the Old Testament, we can you know speak religiously about um, you know what it means to be a Jew. But what's the modern definition of a Jew? Like Leo Leo struggles with this. He grasps and and grapples with this idea of do Jewish people. A modern Jewish people in Israel, in the United States, in Europe, all over the planet, do we have a definition of what it means to be a Jew? That, that's a great question. You know, who is a Jew? You know, uh, uh, when you look at the, the term, you know, you can uh, look at it from a legal point of view, from an ethnical point of view, from a cultural point of view, from a religious point of view. I guess at the end of the day, you'll have to use all of the above. And I would say a Jew is a member of um, the Jewish people, a um, ancient people that uh, has brought to humanity morality, justice. Uh, if you look at the Ten Commandments, you know, it's, it's really, um, if, if all of us, I mean, in the world, if all peoples of the world would live by uh, Jewish, um, let's say, Jewish uh, ethics 
and Jewish laws and uh, morality, I think we would live in a much, much uh, better world. I would, I, I would say a Jew is someone who seeks peace, uh, who loves his neighbor as himself. You know, if you look at all the great Jewish rabbis, I'm not saying we all live by uh, our ideals, but at least we strive for the ideal. And the ideal of being a Jew, I think, is to make humanity much better, to be kind to uh, each other. And I think the Jews throughout history, especially modern history, have, uh, have proven that um, they give more than they take. If, if you look at all the uh, uh, Nobel Prize winners, you know, the Jews in terms of, um, you know, our weight in the population is 0.003%. Yet, you know, if you look at all those uh, uh, Jewish um, scientists and scholars who made real contribution, Einstein-like, uh, we punch much, much uh, more than our weight, not just 10 times more, uh, hundred and more times than than our um, our numbers. So I think, uh, I mean, I it makes me very proud to be a Jew, and and we've also had I think also one more, and and I'll finish here, Mark. I'm just belaboring too much, but there's one more uh, I think aspect to it, and that is that uh, not only we are true to ourselves, we are putting our, um, let's say, our money where our mouth is, because we are willing to die for our beliefs. We are willing to die for making the world better. And look at all the trials and tribulation of, of the Jews for the last 2,000 years. We have paid an enormous price, more than any other people I can think of in history. And yet, uh, we survived. And not only we survived, now we have thrived. And this is also something which uh, I think should give an inspiration to any people in the world, that if you stand by your values, and if these are good values, you know, when you want to do good to others, not bad to others, you will always prevail. That's interesting. So it's, you know, when you look at geography and you, and you look at the, um, you know, the Old Testament, it's easy to think in terms of like the negative, right? Like Jews have survived over and over and over again, right? But what you're talking about is more of a forward looking, looking modern vision uh, to unify people with the spirit of goodness, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you would see always, you would see uh, the Jews at the forefront of progress, of um, human rights. So it's, it's really, uh, you know, the, the, the Jewish state really is an epitome of Jewish ideals. Unfortunately, we live here in a very bad neighborhood. Uh, but, <laughs> tough uh, neighborhood. Yes, the tough neighborhood. Actually, the, everything that we believe in is an uh, anathema uh, to them or at least to the radical of them. And, and there is a, here actually a, uh, a clash of ideologies, I would say, not to use bigger word like clash of civilizations. But we are here at the same line, unfortunately, where we represent uh, Judaism or even Judeo-Christian, I would say, heritage, vis-a-vis um, uh, -vis, uh, um, radical Islam. Now, I'm very careful 
when I say radical Islam, is only a very, very small portion of, of Islam and Muslims. But they are the ones who are setting the tone, unfortunately. And uh, if you look at the map, um, it is Israel who is only little Israel, which is behind radical Islam, you know, global jihadists, whether they are Shiites in, in Tehran or Hezbollah in, in Lebanon or the Houthis in Yemen or Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. We are the only ones between them and the rest of the Western world. Europe yeah. is just next door to us. And then, of course, later on, it's the United States. Yeah, it really does seem like it's a multi-front war right now. You started mentioning it. You know, you, you have Iran kind of uh, providing arms and money, and then Hezbollah in Lebanon up in the north, and, you know, Syria's active, Yemen. Obviously, there's Hamas and, and there's ISIS. It seems like, although it, it hasn't formally been declared this way, it looks like Israel really does sit in a tough neighborhood. But I guess my question is, um, going back to one of your comments, like, so is this an Israeli issue or is this a Jewish issue, right? Is it, is it the tough neighborhood or is it a, now, has this unfolded to, to show us that this is much bigger than just Israel? This is a Jewish issue. I mean, anti-Semitism is rampant in the city I live here in New York City. We see it in some of the best cities in the world throughout Europe and North America and, and you know, even in, in places like Africa, um, which we could get into in a second. So in your opinion, is it a Jewish issue? I would say, yes, it's a Jewish issue because Israel is a Jewish state. And if I have to define myself, first I am a Jew, and then I'm an Israeli. Israel would not be back in existence if it wasn't for the Jewish people, you know, coming back to their uh, homeland. Uh, the Jews are of the land, are from this land. Uh, by the way, I have always uh, said to, to our detractors, yes, we have been in exile for 2,000 years, but don't forget, there was always a constant, a, a continuous Jewish presence here in, in our land. You know, those uh, um, few who were left after the different exiles still kept Jewish life here in the old city of Jerusalem, in Safed, you know, Tzfat, in the Galilee, in Tiberias. So uh, if you look uh, 2,000 years, you know, they're... Um, I, I think, but even modern, right? Like, I think one of uh, the prime ministers that you worked with, Prime Minister Ariel Sharon, wasn't he born into the territory before the Israeli state was formally built by the, formally acknowledged by the United Nations? Sure. Well, that, Am I right? that, this is where um, you cannot really discuss history in sound bites. And unfortunately, you know, we are falling prey. And, and, and we see it also in the United States in the campuses where they do not really understand. I'm not talking about complex geopolitical. Uh, uh, systems and the architecture, but just plain history. I mean, yes, this, right. The land of Israel has not been under any other sovereignty than the Jewish people. You know, from King David time. You know, if if I have to describe Jewish history in in maybe three sentences, you know, we became um, a tribe, let's say, by Abraham. Right, Abraham made us, put us together. As, as, you know, big family. And then uh, Moses made us a people in the, in the Sinai, you know, uh, Mount Sinai. 
And King David made us a nation, a sovereign nation, because, you know, his kingdom was with a specific territory. Before that, we didn't have a territory. King David put Jerusalem as his capital, and that was about 3,020 years ago. Since then, and until now, Jerusalem was only capital of the Jewish people. There were many, many occupiers who came and left. But all those, you know, whether the Greeks or, uh, or Turks or uh, Mamluks, you name it, they never made uh, Jerusalem as their own capital. They never made the land their own. It, they were occupiers all the way to the British. And the name is Judea, Samaria, Israel. Where did the name Palestine, uh, where did that uh, come from? From the Roman people. British, right? Yeah. Oh, Roman. Yes. Roman third uh, century, um, Adrian, the, um, the emperor Adrian, uh, after the big uh, insur- you know, uh, the, uh, insurgency here in Israel, uh, wanted to sever all contacts between the people and the land. And he changed the name from Judea and Samaria and the Galilee, these were the provinces, to Palestina. And that's why you see we see sometimes that name with Hebrew um, on old currency, correct? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And Palestine is a Roman name. It's not an Arabic name. Uh, by the way, this, um, uh, this emperor also tried to change the name of Jerusalem, and he gave it a name, Ilia Capitolina. It's all in the books. But Ilia Capitolina did not stick, so it kept Jerusalem. But unfortunately, those who were chartering the maps uh, in the beginning were the Romans. So, and, and then, you know, layer after layer of uh, map charters, they just copied from each other. And the name Palestina stuck all the way to, uh, as you mentioned, to 1948. And when uh, Sharon, you know, former uh, uh, prime minister, uh, was born. He was born in Palestina. It was called Palestina AI. What is AI? The land of Israel. This is a, the, the official name was Palestina AI. And in Palestina, Palestine, there were Jewish Palestinians and Arab Palestinians. This is how we were termed. And because of the fighting, infighting, the, U, the, the, the British mandate, you know, they uh, took it to the UN and the UN had a great idea, division. Palestine would be divided into a Jewish state and an Arab state. This is, I'm quoting from the uh, uh, resolution of the UN 181 of 29th of uh, November 1947. The Jews said, okay, we'll take it. Although it was a very small land, we'll take it and we will build the Jewish land in Palestine. The Arabs said, no, for us, everything. We do not want coexistence. We do not want the Jews. War started. We won. End of story. How many times have the Arabs said no since then? Many times. Um, By the way, it goes even further. Uh, To 1937, uh, the Arabs said no. 1947, they said no. 1967, uh, they they said no. And uh, after the Six Days War, let's say a few years later, the Arab League, decided to support a uh, a Palestinian independent uh, state, which they did not before that. You know, that uh, the West Bank today, Judea and Samaria, was actually occupied by Jordan until 1967. Gaza 
as we're speaking about now, that we are fighting there. Gaza was occupied by Egypt. And the Palestinian Liberation Organization that was formed in 1965, who did they want to liberate the land from? Not from the Jordanians or the Egyptians. They actually wanted uh, uh, all the rest of the land. And since then, there was 2000 Camp David and the Oslo Agreement. And there was uh, um, an offer by um, Olmert, which was uh, another prime minister here in 2007, to Abu Mazen. Every time they would reject. Why? And again, it's it's almost scientifically we can we can prove it. More than the Palestinians want to build their own state, they want to destroy ours. Otherwise, they would have had their state of their own a long time ago. But the thing is, they want all or nothing. And this is something that uh, we will not volunteer um, our um, demise, not individually and not collectively. So it's it's interesting that you mentioned that over and over again, they just want one. And obviously right now, there's so much talk about a two-state solution and all. And you know, a lot of that comes to messaging. We were talking a little bit earlier about proper messaging. So all over the world, Muslims seem to have, or, or let's say radical Muslims seem to have a messaging machine, which has one message, right? Like you and I haven't discussed about, discussed this, but if you were going to articulate what that one message is, that unified message from the radical Muslim world, what would you say it is? Their message is very simple. The Jews are colonialists, imperialists, and they have uh, robbed our poor Palestinians from our land. They are an apartheid state because they discriminate against Arabs and Muslims, and they are occupiers. So this is what they say, you know. They, they, it's 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 all negative, but they repeat it and repeat it. Oh, unified. Over. It's and, unified, and, that, and, and the Israeli messaging. And well, the Israeli messaging is uh, is is much more complex. They say, well, first of all, we are here. I mean. I think the Israeli messaging should be also very simple. We are off this land. We belong to the land as the land belongs to, uh, to, to us. Full stop. We don't have to apologize. We don't have to explain. Just like French people do not have to explain why French is theirs, or British do not need to explain why England is theirs, we should not be uh, needing to explain why Israel is ours. But we do it anyway uh, because we're trying to... Um, let's say, um, get uh, international support and also uh, trying to build a basis for coexistence because next to this messaging that this land is ours has always been the message, but we are willing to partition. We are willing to live side by side with an Arab state, with a Palestinian state, but this state should be a peaceful one one that does not support terror and that does not delegitimize Israel. And, and this is where we have failed. You know, the Oslo uh, process, which started in 1993, the idea was to end up with a two-state solutions, but two states for two peoples, right? The Jewish people and the Palestinian people. We, during this uh, process, Israel has accepted and respected 
the Palestinians' right for self-determination, but they have never respected ours. And that all, you know, all the uh, the, 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 the agreements or uh, the negotiations failed because they did not, until now, they do not accept and do not recognize Israel as a Jewish state. And, and this is what we're trying to say. I mean, just as you can self-determine yourself as you like, you should respect how we determine ourselves. And as long as they do not respect it, we are in this bind. Danny, do you, do you think that the Jewish people, the Israelis, can come together with a collective and comprehensive message that could turn the tide, the perception from the global community? I'm not sure. You know why? Because we are a democracy. We are a liberal democracy and pluralistic democracy, which means, and also we're Jews. You know the joke about uh, every Jew has like uh, two or three different opinions and we like yes. to argue. Uh, and we like to, uh, uh, you know, we, we like self-criticism. I think it's yes. a great idea to get yours better, you know, uh, as we have said before, you know, what Jews have given to humanity, you know, when self-criticizing is, is also something which is very important. Um, so we talked about the message from the Palestinians, you know, Israel is apartheid and an occupier and colonialist. And the message from Israel, you know, goes so many ways. Why? Because we have a very, very biting press, which we don't see it on the other side. Uh, we have um, a civil society with different organizations, with different ideas. We have the sure. opposition, just like in any uh, democracy, we have a very vibrant opposition. And more than that, we have a coalition government, you know, with Jewish politics, and even the coalition government does not speak in one voice. So this was like really evident right before October 7th, right? Like, I wonder if this like innate division, I think there were like Supreme Court issues and whatnot. Like, do you think the, the, the global landscape looked at that and, and pounced on the opportunity? They saw it as an opportunity to take advantage, or do you think that just was a coincidence? Well, here, I, I really take issue with uh, many of our friends in the Western world, democracies themselves, that actually, instead of uh, respecting uh, our democratic conduct, they use, they use our democracy against us uh, because um, we, have, we have a laser-guided uh, messaging system from the Palestinians. By the way, they all speak with one voice. They don't have any opposition to speak of because any opposition there, you know, can speak only one time against the government and then they're gone. And instead of really supporting a fellow de de democracy, they actually uh, fall prey into the propaganda of the Palestinians. And that's why it's, for, for us, it's an, it's an uphill. So there is here, I would say, a structural, a built-in deficiency when it comes to uh, Israel's uh, positioning itself. So, so Israel's capable of, of um, carrying on with traditional democracy and also defending the, the nation at the same time. Yes, and, and I think this is also remarkable because uh, nation states right. under such siege uh, and existential threat, usually, you know, something will have to give. 
And this would be liberalism or democratic conducts, not here in Israel, quite the contrary. And, and we saw just in the last uh, uh, 12 months, you know, when the government wanted to unilaterally change the names of the game here, you know, we don't have a constitution as such, but they wanted to change yeah. uh, the basic uh, laws that people came against it. And, um, you know, with, with great many numbers and everything was done in a very, very peaceful way. No casualties, uh, uh, no um, combats. Uh, uh, the, the police and all the security agencies were very respectful, of course, of the right for demonstrations and all that. So um, it's uh, at the end of the day, I think this is our strength. Our uh, democratic conduct is our strength. Uh, many difference of opinions is also our strength, except when it comes to the the, the, uh, the the positioning in the world. And here I'm afraid, and I will say this, and I'm saying very seriously. Uh, I said that you know we have a built-in deficiency because the Palestinians speak all in one voice, and and we have you know different uh, uh, messaging. Also, we are outnumbered because there are 22 Arab countries, 57 Muslim countries, and there are some countries who sympathize with the Arabs either because they lean on Arab oil or money. There are countries like South Africa, which have become very, um, uh, I would say, uh, uh, critically against Israel. You have countries like North Korea and others, which are not Arabs, but they're all against us. We are outnumbered. But um, um, as I mentioned, we uh, should not just uh, uh, stop uh, fighting the PR fight. We should continue to doing that. And I think there is also today, there is a whole new element here. We started, Mark, with technology. Today, positioning is also about technology. And this is the new uh, media of, you know, the social media and the TikToks of the world and the uh, so many other uh, ways that um, you can influence, especially hearts and minds of the younger generation, which is for, so important for the future. Um, you know, it's interesting you mentioned South Africa um, because uh, this this just recently the Mandela fa- family actually welcomed Hamas to South Africa. They joined the Nelson Nelson Mandela's family in South Africa to commemorate the 10th anniversary of his death. I just want to read. The names, uh, the former health minister of Hamas in Gaza, I, I b- might be pronouncing this incorrectly, Bassem Naim, and Khalid Kadumi, the representative of the Islamist movement in Iran, joined the Mandela family in South Africa surrounding, um, you know, Madiba's passing. So, um, you know, it's it's interesting that you're talking about messaging and and um, how the next generation is um, being influenced. You know, like it's it's remarkable to me that Hamas can just publicly uh, be in a position like that and and also be safe when they're doing that. And I'm afraid here there is another element, and this element should be put right to front and center, and this is anti-Semitism. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, uh, yes, it is complex to uh, to to uh, to explain the the history and the geopolitics uh, in the Middle East and and beyond the Middle East, but the fact that um, there are so many in the world who, as I said, fall prey to the Palestinian propaganda. They it's it's like they want to believe, you know, uh, that Israel is bad uh, without even checking. 
uh, it gives uh, some of them comfort just to accuse Israel. And this is downright uh, anti-Semitism. Uh, so it could be ignorance, but it's not just ignorance. It's also anti-Semitism. I agree. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, and it's built, it seems like, I, I guess this is a, a, to a certain extent rhetorical, but it seems like it's been building for a long time. I mean, the United Nations um, has not been very kind to Israel, and it's not just during this time period, the BDS movement, American media, American politicians, American universities, um, celebrities and pop culture. I know it's a bit trite in the context of this discussion, but, you know, iconic rock and roll bands, Roger Waters, it's just you know, over and over and over again. And yet American media will still, maybe, maybe all of that is, ha, is taking its toll on the public perception of Jews in Israel and, and, uh, creating deeper roots for anti-Semitism. And yet, um, people are still willing to like go as far as like trusting Hamas on like their data for reporting killings or, or anything like this. It's, it's incredible to me. Yes. And, and you look, if, if you look just at the, uh, United Nations organizations. United Nations should be a microcosmos of the entire, let's say, global community. You have not just the political bodies, right? The Security Council and the General Assembly. You have specific organizations that should help and work with children. You have UNICEF, which is an organization to help and uh, keep and respect uh, children all over the world. You have UNESCO with, the, um, with culture and science. You have the, human, uh, the, the women international organizations, which is to respect, of course, uh, the, the, the women and protect them, especially against uh, gender-type uh, crimes, which are awful. Uh, all those were mum after this terrible uh, slaughter of the 7th of October, raping of uh, Israeli women, uh, killing Israeli babies, all the you know the, the 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 worst kind of monstrous things, and they kept quiet. So the question is then, wouldn't the International Red Cross and these other international organizations, if it was anywhere else, wouldn't they be reporting on the condition of hostages? Well, the International uh, Red Cross has one mission, and that is to give get out of harm's way uh, prisoners of war, and especially, especially when it comes to civilians and when it comes to, uh, to, to hostages. First and foremost, they should demand the list. You know, Hamas did not even release a list of all those who, were, who they uh, uh, kidnapped. Uh, secondly, they would demand to get an access to make sure that uh, uh, all those hostages are being treated in a humane way. Uh, many of them, in our case, are either you know very young or very old, who are uh, you know in in dire need of, of of medicine. So they would supply them with medicine. None of the above has happened, and we don't hear any outcry, and we don't hear the the, the Red Cross uh, you know pounding uh, on doors, whether it's in Qatar or Cairo or anywhere else. Right. It's as if Israel's like, you know, still standing alone. I know the United States is an ally, but what happens if the United States doesn't use its veto power in the UN? Will, will, will Israel still move forward? Could they stand up? Will Israel stand up to the Biden administration and, and move forward with, with the mission as it's been articulated, the, the two, the two 
concepts that Netanyahu has articulated? Well, fortunately, Mark, you know, uh, we stand shoulder and shoulder with the United States. No doubt. United States is our best friend and ally. Uh, it's not just out of historic and uh, uh, reasons. It's because of very cool and calculated uh, national interests. Uh, there are many Americans uh, who came to the halls of powers and became privy to all the intelligence and analysis who said that uh, if um, Israel was not uh, here, it should have been invented for American national security. So, so here, um, this will continue because, for instance, uh, just one case in point, Hamas. Uh, Hamas terror organization is not just an enemy of Israel, it's an enemy of the United States, it's an enemy of stability in, in the region, uh, it's a proxy of uh, Iran, Iran which is being supported by Russia militarily and uh, politically, supported by China uh, in terms of commercially and economically, uh, both rivals of uh, the United States. The well-being of the United States is very much dependent on stability in, in the Middle East, on um, oil prices and uh, free flow of oil and energy. It's interesting, actually. Um, some of my friends from Israel asked me to ask you specifically that question regarding um, will Israel stay strong in, in the face of United States policy that might make um, Israel um, not not feel like it could use the full force and effect of its military to carry out its military-oriented goals against Hamas. Um, those questions actually came from some of my Israeli colleagues. Yeah. So, Mark, the, the short answer is yes, that. again, because we won't need to. The U.S. interest in uh, destroying uh, Hamas is as, um, I would say, uh, viable as, as Israel's. Uh, the um, U.S. interest is of a uh, peaceful uh, Middle East, of um, eliminating the, the, the threat of terrorism, of nuclear proliferation from uh, Iran, uh, of keeping uh, free navigation, you know, in the Straits of uh, Hormuz, the Red Sea, anywhere. Um, the U.S. has global interest. Uh, which really benefits uh, the the American objectives, you know, uh, uh, prosperity, um, um, all, all the economic benefits come out of uh, uh, stability. Uh, and um, if Israel was not here, it would have taken the U.S. so much uh, more in 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 terms of uh, uh, casualties and in terms of um, military efforts and economic uh, drainage uh so 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 we are together in that and the u.s uh, will not really interfere with tactical issues of how do we uh, eliminate hamas we do differ on the day after and and we have to uh to to reckon with that but this is also uh not something that uh, will bring us into a uh, collision course quite the contrary well well like before we get into like the nuts and bolts of the day after i get i have a question like if I get the sense of like, in a way, like it's as if Israel and America are waiting for something to happen as it relates to Iran. Like there's like this weird type of like emotional, like there's no logic to it except for the fact that we know Iran's, 
you know, has said publicly over and over again that they'd like to see Israel and America wiped out, that they're financing all of this terrorist activity. But do you get the sense in from this is really a professional, um, uh, like in your professional opinion, do you get the sense that like there's like this kind of like global thing where like we're not talking about it, but we're waiting for something to happen with with regards to Iran? I think that um, our American position uh, vis-a-vis Iran was too soft. Um, and, and the Iranians are very determined to actually reach uh, hegemony, to actually take over the entire Middle East as a springboard to even further domination of the world. We have to understand that the Ayatollahs, and all, all you need to do is, is their reading and their teaching, uh, they are uh, fatalists. Uh, they really believe in Muslim domination. And, and, and not just Muslim, but the Shiite type. Muslim of the of uh, of the Iranians, and they will push and push until they are stopped, until they encounter an opposition. And so far, um, the opposition has not been uh, strong enough. Uh, the only threat you have on Iran uh, ayatollahs is uh, their political survival. They don't care about the Iranian people. By the way, the only time that the the ayatollahs have voluntarily in 2003 when they were flanked by u.s forces on their afghanistan border and on the iraqi border and they thought that they would be might be coming next so they voluntarily stopped so there is a way to stop them but you need a credible military threat which has not been on the table and this is why they were able to reach and 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 move uh, forward to to where they are today so is the weak policy, as everybody says, the weak policy towards Iran just an extension of the Obama administration's policy? I think Obama was was too weak. You know, the JCPOA, this is nuclear agreement with Iran in 2015, uh, had so many loopholes. And we have to remember at that time, Iran, Iran was begging for these negotiations. Iran at that time was on the verge of economic uh, collapse and political isolation. And here you have one, uh, um, I would say, weakened Iran on the one side of the table. On the other side of the table, you have the five, six, actually, with Germany, the six most, um, uh, 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 the strongest nations in the, in the world. So you would think that, you know, the, uh, the outcome would be in favor of those countries that also wanted the stability and, uh, and, and, and security. And, and yet the Iranians were able to uh, really push and almost uh, dictate many of the articles of, of this peace agreement. Then 2018 came and Trump uh, withdrew from the agreement, but there was no fallback. There was no plan B. Hence, now uh, that the Biden administration uh, did not actually, um, um, let's say, double down on the the pressure from the Trump administration. And uh, the Iranians are now off the hook. On the one hand, they blame the Americans for breaching, for breaking the agreement. They move forward against all the international norms and uh, international law. And nothing is being done. So today, unfortunately, the only um, thing, the only, let's say, stop between 
Iran and a nuclear weapon is an Iranian decision. If Iranians decide now they want to just make a breakthrough to uh, detonating a, uh, a nuclear device, they can do it. Like once they have the ability to create a nuclear device, like it doesn't matter who's in the American executive branch of government. They, they have that knowledge. They have the knowledge, right? Just it really, it's, it becomes an ongoing threat to Israel and, and to America and, you know, democracy in general. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you cannot uh, take away uh, the knowledge, but you can keep such deterrence uh, where they will have to do their cost-benefit analysis, uh, realizing that uh, in order to um, continue and illegally strive for nuclear capabilities, they will pay a, a heavy price. Now, ultimately, ultimately, um, there is always the, um, the a military answer. And with, with that, you know, of course, it's not the first uh, tool in the... Uh, in the toolbox that uh, should be used, but um, and, and also it's it's an effective to an extent because you know you can take out certainly the United States can take out all if not uh, most if not all the, the uh, nuclear installations, but as you mentioned, Mark, they have the the know-how. So in five years, ten years, they can build again. So, but they should understand that if they do it, you know, it's like mowing lawn that they, every time they will um, uh, spring up with illegal nuclear activities, it will be taken down. And uh, hopefully they will understand that it's not to their benefit to do that. So just staying on like American policy right now, do you think American policy is strong enough as it relates to the American hostages? Like why aren't, I don't know if you realize this or if you've heard it Danny, but like here in the United States, there's, there's no politician that's vocal about the American hostages um, at all. Frankly, there's no one in the media that's vocal about the American hostages why aren't the Americans, or maybe they have special forces that are, are trying to get the American hostages and the Israeli hostages um, out of Gaza? But again, in your professional opinion, do you feel like we are, as a nation right now, being a little bit too weak policy-wise in general, or is there, is there a reason? Well, the reason was actually spelled out by, uh, by the U.S. They don't want the widening of the war. And... Um, to that effect, uh, they sent these two strike uh, force groups. You know the the, uh, the, the uh, you know these aircraft carriers, the Eisenhower and the Ford for deterrence. But I'm not sure that the deterrence um, works very well. Look at all the attacks on American forces in the Gulf, and um, I do not recall uh, taking, let's say, Russian hostages or uh, targeting uh, Russian assets. Uh, why? There is deterrence. Because the Russians would just uh, get crazy and demolish everything at sight. And with the U.S. right now, there is a loss of, I call it healthy respect or deterrence. Uh, because if the U.S. does not respond uh, in a timely manner, so there is a you know, a context um, relationship, and not in a forceful way, and then uh, these um, pricks and needles uh, will, will continue. And uh, we see right now with the Houthis, if they will uh, stop 
the free navigation, the passage in the, uh, uh, you know, in the straits, in the Arab uh, straits and in the Arab uh, Sea, not only Israel would be affected, the entire world, you know, 17% of world commerce and shipments go through these uh, uh, straits. And right now, the, the, the um, result is a um, rise in shipment costs, in insurance costs. Everybody's paying for that. Um, and you need an international res- response. Who is capable of leading such a response? And, a, and an international uh, alliance is the United States. And this is where I would expect the U.S. to have more leadership and more determination and more, I would say, uh, a, a clear message. Right now, the message is not clear. I, I know that you referenced Russia um, a few times now, and, and I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you actually worked a few times and met Putin a few times in your career. Um, in your opinion, would, would Putin sit back and um, uh, be so um, gentle and balanced if Russia was in the situation that Israel, that Israel is in right now? No, not at all. And, and we have seen it. Uh, I mean, we have the Ukraine where we saw that actually the military apparatus uh, or the conventional um, uh, military apparatus of Russia is almost a uh, paper tiger, <laughs> I would say. This is a good thing. But uh, unfortunately, they have a, a formidable um, nuclear arsenal. But uh, the Russians were, in a way, uh, in a similar situation than Israel in Chechnya about 20 years ago. I think it was 2002 or 2001. I can't remember exactly. But uh, again, and uh, who acted up against the, the Russians? Muslims again, you know, radical Muslims in Chechnya. How did Putin respond? Carpet uh, bombing. He flattened Grozny, which is the... Uh, the capital of, of Chechnya. So the Russian response have always been very decisive. And, of course, no regard to human lives, no regard to, uh, to innocent people in between. So this, these are the Russians, but uh, they command, I would say, uh, a healthy respect, if you will, from other countries. This is why you don't see Russian forces or troops being attacked anywhere in the world. Uh, unless they are the ones attacking in, in, in Ukraine, which is a self-defense war by the Ukraine. But uh, Russian uh, um, military bases around the world are not under any threat, unlike the United States, which is really um, unfathomable. Danny, it's, it's another thing that's unfathomable to me that's actually like mind-blowing is the fact that Hamas billionaire leadership is sitting in Qatar, in Turkey, and you know Mossad and the United States hasn't taken them out yet. I read today, I don't know if it's accurate, but I read that um, apparently they're on the move. And I'm curious, I don't know if you've heard this, but I'm curious, again, from your professional, uh, in your professional opinion, what does it mean if the Hamas leaders are moving out of Qatar and Turkey? We can imagine where they're going, but is there something deeper there? Does that mean that they're, that like, the hostage, like something might have happened to the hostages, or like, what, like, why would they be on the run all of a sudden? Like, was there like a, a, a breakup between the United States, Israel, and Qatar with regards to them protecting these people now? Or, like, in your opinion, what, what do you think that that means or signals? Well, yeah, well, Mark, it, it's hard to speculate. I would say the fact that they live or they will live 
uh, as fugitives is a good thing because if they have to invest a lot of their uh, time and effort and resources to uh, run and hide, uh, they have uh, less uh, time and, um, and, and resources uh, to, to attack us. But the fact that they all should be, um, I, I would say, uh, should, should be brought into justice, it, there is no question about it. And I think here Israel is determined. I don't think we should speak too much about it. Um, you know, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu said that he gave an order to the Mossad to kill them all. I don't think he should have done that. You know, if you want to shoot, shoot. Don't talk about it. You know, the, the Munich uh, massacre of 1972, where uh, 11 Israeli uh, athletes were massacred by uh, Black September. None of those uh, terrorists of Black September, which belong to Arafat, you know, it's part of the PLO, basically. Um, none of them uh, ended up um, his life uh, peacefully. Not the perpetrators, not the ones that sent them. And I think this is this should be the lesson. Same thing is with, with Hamas now. You know, uh, the Hamas are Nazi-like. Uh, I mean, they actually breached any any norm of of humanity, of uh, uh, of normalcy. Of it's it's just terrible. And with this type of evil, um, you have to bring them to justice, just like the uh, Nazis uh, were uh, hanged in uh, Nuremberg, uh, the Nuremberg trials. I think that the Hamas perpetrators of the seventh of uh, October massacre should be treated same way. On a personal level, I believe that you have a relationship with the United States uh, CIA, CIA director, Bill Burns, and I think he's in the region right now. What would he be doing there right now? Well, first of all, Bill Burns, yes, he's a most capable uh, diplomat and leader. I think the CIA is in good hands uh, under his uh, command. Very seasoned, very experienced. He was uh, actually uh, very commendable that uh, he was so much engaged personally in the, the release of um, the, um, the, the first you know, few batches of, uh, uh, of hostages that came out. I think 110 altogether all came out uh, alive. And I think that it also shows the um, closeness of relationship between Israel and the United States. Um, and it's not just the, the American uh, citizens who are uh, in the hands of uh, Hamas. It's also the, the, the Israelis. And I think also uh, what uh, he's trying to do here is to keep the alliance together. Because there is a, we, we talked about this uh, um, shared interest. It's not just between Israel and the United States. Uh, it's also the uh, moderate Sunni countries. Egypt, uh, Jordan, uh, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, the Emirates, Morocco, all those countries um, have the same interest as Israel and uh, the United States. First and foremost, their own survival, because the uh, Ayatollahs in Iran and their proxies, Hamas, for instance, Hamas is a mortal enemy of all the uh, uh, moderate um, you know, Muslim regimes. That's why n nobody wants them in their own uh, in their own uh, territory. But I think what uh, Bill Burns does also is making sure 
that the coalition, you know, this actually undeclared coalition between the Israel, the United States, and the Sunni Abrahamic uh, countries, uh, uh, you know, the ones that we have uh, peace with, um, that um, they would work as closely together in coordination as possible. Yeah, I know that Saudi Arabia was close to joining the Abraham Accords as well, right before October 7th. Do you think there's a chance to get back to that after this war? Undoubtedly. And this is also Great. one of the reasons that we need uh, to see a uh, decisive result. Because if uh, we end the war with Hamas still standing, that means that Iran has won. And that means that Iran can continue and build their uh, cells and terror organizations in the region uh, to the detriment of uh, peace and security and maybe to uh, the glee of, uh, of Russia and maybe even China. Uh, I uh, cannot say for certain, but the timing of the 7th of October massacre you know, um, came in the, in the wake of um, a declaration by President uh, Biden of a, um, you know, moving together uh, and uh, peace between Israel and Saudi Arabia, which would be even bigger for the region because what uh, uh, the President Biden was talking about uh, was actually connecting Asia with Europe through the Middle East, uh, like a... Right from uh, India and Saudi Arabia and Jordan and Israel and Egypt uh, to Europe. This would have been a great, um, let's say, uh, substitute to what the Chinese are trying to do with their, um, what they call the, uh, the, the Belt and Road projects, which uh, would be a project with all the uh, dictatorships. Of, of the the world. So in order to scuttle such, such a thing, certainly Iran is benefiting from a possibility of rift between or, or not getting together between Israel and, and Saudi Arabia. But I think that the interests are too strong. And once Hamas is down and out, we will see a new engagement between uh, Saudi Arabia and, and Israel and all actually the moderate countries in the region. You know, we have two camps here. We have the camp of the Ayatollahs of Iran with all their proxies, and we have the camp of the United States. And in this camp, you have Israel, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and all the other countries. It's important that the United States wins and not Iran. So I have one quick question for you and then one closing statement. I know you've been extraordinarily generous with your time, and I know it's getting late there, so I really appreciate it. My first question to you is, is October 7th the worst day in history of Israel? Yes. And you can um, judge it, first of all, by the numbers. You know, um, 1,200 Israelis were, were slaughtered in this day, more than in any other day since the Holocaust. You know, more Jews were killed on the 7th of October in any other day since 1945. So this is telling why it was so horrible. And secondly, I think it was the, the, the psychological uh, uh, blow uh, to Israel, uh, understanding that um, 
we are still here fighting for our independence, fighting for our existence. We do have the capabilities to defend ourselves by ourselves, but we also need to have the will to do that, and we need to have the, um, I would say, the, the, the will to deploy and the need to deploy all, all of our capabilities. So, so it was a shock to us that we were not prepared. So yes, it was the worst day uh, in Israel's uh, modern history since the, uh, Israel was uh, reestablished in 1948. And I say reestablished because, you know, we were here 4,000 years ago. So uh, as a modern nation, we were reestablished. We were not established by, by the UN. We were established by our own leaders throughout the history. My guests end the show um, by finishing a statement that I start, um, tying back to the show's name, Some Future Day. So I'd like to challenge you with this, Danny. I know this is off the cuff, but you're, I think you're up for it. Um, in some future day, Israel will be. <laughs> in some future day, Israel will be a hub of technology and of inspiration to the Middle East and beyond, taking and actually uh, solving all the challenges that the region has, challenge of um, um, food security and water availability. The area is draining. Uh, um, food security is very, very uh, uh, frail. Desertification, the deserts is pushing forward. Only technology can change that. Israel already has the technology. It will continue to work on this uh, technology and it will continue to be able to defend itself. And with a, a strong strategic position of Israel, militarily, strategically, economically, culturally, and scientifically, I believe we will be a magnet for um, many countries in the region to join force uh, with Israel and to live and, into a prosperous uh, uh, and uh, coexistent world uh, together. Uh, I, I believe that uh, the leaders of the region and the people of the region prefer uh, um, peace, stability, and prosperity for their children over death and misery and poverty. And uh, this is what the other side offers. What Iran and the radical Islam offers is only death as they cherish death. We cherish life. Life will always win over death. All right, Danny. Thank you so much for you know all of your insight, expertise, knowledge, passion. It's really been a pleasure having you on some future day today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. I know your time is very important, so thank you so much for joining me today. For ongoing insight surrounding these important topics, you can join the conversation on my social media channels, including Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, at Mark Beckman. And to sign up for my newsletter on Substack, you can find me at markbeckman.substack.com. To make sure you don't miss a show, be sure to subscribe to Some Future Day across all major platforms worldwide, including YouTube, Spotify, and Apple. Special thanks to New York University for producing Some Future Day and a big shout out to my producer extraordinaire, John Boomhofer, for being patient and always encouraging me to push through. 
Thanks a lot, John. Have a great day. <laughs>